It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down An American loser the day I was born Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of American Loser. It is the podcast that puts the spotlight firmly on second place. We're telling weird stories from American history. With me, as always, my name's KP Burke. My Delph of a dad, Lawrence Patrick, is here. How are you? No, oh, we're just doing great, Kev. Couldn't be better. Sounds like it. You, uh, yeah, actually, you have your cool new microphone set up now. You got your big headphones on. As you said, you look a little bit like Mickey Mouse. There's a thing. <laughs> there you go. Got those stick out ears. Yeah, no, I'm actually mostly impressed that you were able to set up the laptop and all this other stuff. You have your little podcast studio down in South Beach now. And, um, yep. Yeah, we're know. good. Speaking live, remotely. <laughs> from south florida live from the shitter that's it <laughs> that's right the next flush you hear excuse me the next sound you hear <laughs> the next flush you hear <laughs> well you guys know that voice um who else technically i guess behind the ones and twos but really the guy setting us up on Streamyard today so that we can keep the show coming out for you guys uh the big kahuna <laughs> what's up guys how are you oh it's a, a sorry we woke you up early today but it is what it is dude it is all good it's <laughs> It's really all good. You know I love recording this show, so as long as no one gets to see this ugly mug, everyone's fine. Oh, no! (laughs) Avert your eyes. Avert your eyes. (laughs) Kona actually having a good hair day today, unlike myself, so i got to give him credit for that. But um, No, this is a weird time, man, because it's uh, typically on a Sunday at 12.37, Dad, we're placing orders for Pizza One and getting ready to watch uh, some football all day, but... There's no football left. It's nope. over. Not until next year. It's gone. There was a a big game recently, though, was there not? Absolutely. Some what? might even call it a super game. A super game. Look at this guy. That's <laughs> 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 well. Uh, so Tom Brady's magnificent. There's no way we can actually talk about him as an American loser because uh, I think he just solidified. I think he is. He's up there with Jordan and Babe Ruth as being one of the greatest of all time. Uh, and that performance came at the expense of the Kansas City Chiefs who are going to be – I mean, that's definitely going to be a team to contend with for the – you know, I would say at least the next 10 years. But Kansas City Massacre, maybe that's a little bit too much of a um, – too much hyperbole perhaps, right? But they certainly didn't look good on Sunday. No, there could have been a better performance there, but uh, I don't think it really deserves a massacre uh, status. Oh, I like what you're doing here, sir. Um <laughs> We're going to today talk about something that we found. I was mentioned to uh, Kahuna in the pre-show that uh, the Ma Barker episode, which is one of my favorites, um, I really had a great time learning about her. Um, I came across this thing called the Legitimate Kansas City Massacre. Uh, Kahuna, had you ever heard of this beforehand? I have not, actually. Yes. I've heard it mentioned, but I didn't know anything about it. So I think we're going to have to you know, spend the next hour or so here diving into it. Wait, was it like mentioned in the sense of like... It was almost referred to as it was a small footnote where it's not really well known, or is it like why is it just widely known, just we've never covered it? Good question. That was uh, so here's the thing that I love about doing the show, and I think my father will uh, agree. 
wormholes, right, LP? <laughs> Absolutely. You go down many, you call it wormholes, rabbit holes, whatever you want to call it, uh, diving into it. And you don't know what you're going to come popping back up out, out of the hole with. Uh, but this, this was a good example of that. There was many, uh, a, ca a cast of many players here that came about with this episode. Certainly. I mean, it, there's some good names in today's episode. So it's a, uh, uh, a hallmark, if you will, of American losers to always have some weird names that just stick with you. There's plenty on this one. So um, that being said, not to be confused with the obvious low-hanging fruit joke of what the Bucks defense did to Kansas City in the Super Bowl. We found something weird recently, and uh, we're going to talk about it today. It's what's known as the Kansas City Massacre. So on the morning of June 17th, 1933, uh, Dad, what were you doing back then? <laughs> I don't think I was around in 33, Kev. Sorry. <laughs> well, I can definitely tell you about the zeitgeist of the time. It was a great old jolly time. <laughs> <laughs> zeitgeist is a good word on this one. So you're you're typically this is what's going on in what's known as again the public enemy era. Um, and Dad, you weren't really part of the Mob Barker episode, but when you hear the public enemy era, what pops into your head? Uh, well, that's uh, you know Al Capone, Frank Nitti, uh, the mob bosses. Uh, in 33, of course, we're also dealing with prohibition. So this was the, the height of the, uh, you know, Elliot Ness and uh, all of those guys, uh, the cops and robbers big time. Now, Elliot Ness, interesting character because he was a Treasury agent. Uh, so around this time frame, you also have obviously there's going to be some loser exceptions in here. Um, but you're going to have uh, specifically a guy by the name of J. Edgar Hoover, who has what's going to become the FBI at the time. It's known as the Bureau of Investigation. So were you aware of how little power they actually had when they were first starting out? Because they were kind yeah. of a private entity. Not until I started uh, researching this podcast, but the, the early uh, federal agents uh, weren't carrying firearms, which I thought was like, wait a minute, you're going, after, you're, you're going after some of the baddest asses in the country uh, on the criminal element. And uh, you cannot even packing. I mean, what's going on there? That's that's just so totally bizarre. Was they it also were not allowed to affect arrests, which I thought was even more interesting. So right. Also, oh, it's it's like citizens arrest. It's like we're the FBI. You're going to be arrested. Do that's the gun? no. That's the exact. That's the exact terminology. Goons is a citizens arrest. They would have <laughs> to make a citizens arrest and report it to the local authorities, and the local authorities would then make the, <laughs> the make the final arrest. So you talk about bizarro, but. Uh, yeah, and, and as it turns out, this was a game changer in a lot of senses uh, for, um, you know, criminal investigation and uh, federal agents and everything else as to um, from what they learned from the Kansas City massacre, which we'll be delving into. Uh, it was a, a game changer in a lot of different fronts. And by the way, it only takes so th this event, it winds up becoming like a huge catalyst for uh, what the modern FBI is. Uh, response to uh, the gangsters in the public enemy era. Uh, a lot of violence is going to fall out from this. Uh, giant manhunts are going to go down. And the entire event takes place in about the span of 30 seconds. What? Right. Right. Yes. Th 30 seconds uh, was a, a, a complete and total game changer as far as law enforcement is concerned. Well, it's going to take place on uh, June 17th, the morning of June 17th, 1933, to be more specific. Uh, it's going to take place, like we said, in about 30 seconds and ends in the death of deaths, I should say, of four law enforcement officers and one fugitive. There remain some questions to this day about the nature of the massacre and who was possibly involved. That's uh, where American Loser is going to come in, baby. Here we are. We're ready to tell you about the Kansas right. City Massacre. 
<laughs> At least the American Loser version, because there are so many different versions to uh, uh, to this that uh, you know it, it, it's still left to speculation today exactly what. Oh, like there's very the exact facts. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It gets oh, more confusing. It's one of those things. It's a classic uh, uh, American loser vestige, if you will. That uh, the more you think you understand, what's that line about the troubles over in Ireland, Dad? I don't know where you're where you're going with that uh, the, one. But the more you think you know, the less you actually know. <laughs> right there, you go. There so you saying, go. I'm reading about this thing. That's basically Hollywood and television. The more you think you know about how this shit works, the the further you are from the truth. Right. Jesus. Couldn't be any further from the truth on this one. This, the idea that this is actually a real story is ridiculous because you could just – this could be an episode of The Simpsons. It's just that it, – it's very goofy <laughs> at times. Are we so. talking like a Treehouse of Horror type episode or like what's going on here? I'll let you make that uh, distinction here at the end then, I think, because uh, once I tell it to you, I think you'll get a kick out of it. I'll put it that way. Because if I get to do a casting couch with Simpsons characters, this is going to be the best episode of American Loser. <laughs> As I've always said, Mo Sislak gets less funny the more you become him. That's <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, to try and understand this one, because, Dad, you made a great point there. The uh, You have to figure out what we can actually prove. So the only gunman that was successfully identified during the shootout is a guy by the name of Vernon or Vern Miller. Okay. Sounds like he's going to be a pretty bad guy, right? Well, he's complicated. So Vern was once just a nice boy from South Dakota learning the auto mechanic trade, having uh, experience with automotives and particularly with trucks. Vern would be a natural fit when he joined the army and served under the first of many loser sections here today. I don't know. Absolutely. Yep. This one was exciting. Loser reception. He serves with Black Jack Pershing and a young George Patton while they are on the American expedition into Mexico to find and capture loser reception, Pancho Villa. Pancho Villa. Are you kidding me? No, he was a. Oh, I love mechanic. it. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> oh my god. Well, Vern would also serve in France in World War One, becoming a decorated war hero and rising to the rank of sergeant. Again, it's really not. I'm not having a, uh, an easy time coming up with a way to call this guy a piece of shit yet. Um, yeah, he was uh, decorated for valor and bravery while he was serving in France uh, during the First World War. So, mm -hmm. so far, he's uh, sounding like pretty straight and narrow and upstanding uh, young American hero here. But uh, things things go south. Well, like all great criminals back in the day, uh, after the military, he decides he's going to run for, win, and hold the office of sheriff. <laughs> I was waiting for, I, I sat there, I was like, there's no way this guy was actually, because when you look up his name on uh, the internet, it'll say uh, that Vern Miller was a bootlegger, uh, gunfighter, bank robber, former sheriff, sheriff. yeah, <laughs> former war hero sheriff. <laughs> Some things just kind of stand out that shouldn't be equaling two plus two equals four here. It's like, uh, no, that's uh, that shouldn't be on the same uh, resume <laughs> if, if you look at it. Yeah, depending on which it. job you're going for. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, from his from his military training, he was a uh, you know sharpshooter. He was a crack shot. He was very well versed with the use of firearms, especially the uh, the machine gun. And uh, going back into World War One history, kind of a thing. The Thompson uh, submachine gun made its first really debut uh, in warfare during the First World War. That's why you know a lot of these gangster movies that we see that 
you know, what's the what's the weapon of choice is the is the Tommy gun, the Thompson submachine gun. So uh, with his military training, he's able to convince the good folks of uh, Beetle County, South Dakota, to uh, elect him as a sheriff officer. I mean, he, well, you know, he's an upstanding uh, guy. He's a decorated uh, war hero. Uh, uh, why not make him sheriff? So. And he's and he's got he's got a certain set of skills. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's going to pull this job off pretty effectively for about two years, right, Dad? That's what I was reading. That I believe. Yeah, he, was, uh, he held that down for two years. Uh, did you see why he uh, kind of left that trade? Essentially, they said he got bored and decided to flee town, uh, and then also on his way out, help himself to three thousand dollars of the county's money. Oh, right. <laughs> right. right. Uh, it, well, it was kind of like a, a parting gift <laughs> from the county that uh, they didn't really know about that. He just took <laughs> off with uh, three grand of county funds. Hey, it's the people's money. I'm some of the people. Right. This makes That's sense. Right. <laughs> right. And three grand. I mean, back in the middle this again, we're in the height of the depression here. So I believe that's uh, somewhere around the uh, in 20, 1922. So things are not going real well um, financially for a lot of folks. So the three grand is a, a, a sizable chunk of money for the, for the time period. Oh, absolutely. And <laughs> so that's Vern's first uh, indicator that maybe sometimes this guy likes to play by his own rules. Yeah, he kind of drifts on both sides of the, of the line. Well, this leads to him becoming a bootlegger. Cause as you said, that it's prohibition time frame, which is anybody who's running like bootlegger and drug dealer are kind of like uh, interchangeable terms to me, I would say, because, First of all, what a giant failure it was of the idea of, oh, we're going to have prohibition in this country. And now you got people, uh, well, there's medicinal whiskey. There's uh, people making bathtub gin. We're just importing it from Canada. <laughs> uh, the, the rum runners are going to be coming up. Rum runner is a legit term from that whole time frame. I mean, I can't think of such a, a dumb, ineffective thing that literally created an entire crime wave. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. Gave rise to the whole, to the whole, uh, to the mob, to the, to uh, the underworld. Um, but I thought it was cool too, that, uh, you know, he embezzles three grand from the County. Uh, he's tracked down and uh, convicted and he's uh, imprisoned into the South Dakota state penitentiary, but he becomes the warden's personal chauffeur <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's, and he's granted parole in 1924. So he, he's basically served a year um, for embezzling from the, from the County. And so he gets out, but now that he's out, I guess he learned a few things while he was in prison for the short term that he was. And now he goes into, uh, again, we're with, with prohibition in full effect. He becomes uh, a bootlegger and uh, he gets caught bootlegging booze. So uh, <laughs> there also, you go. He's, he's spiraling the, down the drain. I just did the math just because I was curious. Because if he stole that money in 1923 when it was – when you guys said it happened, adjusted for inflation, he stole forty, almost forty-seven thousand dollars. Like what the worth was then. Yeah. Now. Right. That could buy you a nice uh, Ford F one fifty, right, Dad? <laughs> you make your getaway with. <laughs> exactly. There you go. No, I love that because yeah, that that is always a funny thing to talk about. Now he's got that interesting thing where you're talking about. He became the uh, the warden's personal chauffeur. So we're gonna have to introduce another character here in a second who also has some weird uh, responsibilities in prison. Uh, did you guys, did you get into this at all, dad, about knowing what uh, the term, a, a, not a trustee with two E's, but a, a right. trustee, a trustee. Yeah, I did get into that. 
Um, that- I don't like where this is going at all. It's, <laughs> it's upsetting. It's very upsetting. Yeah, the, the prison system um, at that time was not what we know it today, that uh, um, oftentimes um, the prisons were set up to be uh, – self uh, self-sustaining so if you had a prison you would appoint a warden and the warden would have total say as to how things are being run um especially down south um mississippi uh arkansas um alabama but also some of the northern states and so new york had a similar system a, a, a trustee system that some of the prisoners were actually put in charge of the other prisoners to the point where the, the hierarchy within the, the prison uh, farm system, if you will, um, there was a whole, certainly a pecking order that the highest level trustee would actually be carrying rifles, guarding the other prisoners. And then there wow. was a, a pecking order all the way down the line that, you know, if you, you might get a job in, in the, in the kitchen, you might be uh, in the dispensary for, um, pharmaceuticals or whatever else, but there was certainly a, a you know a pecking order, a hierarchy within the the prison. So basically, the prisoners are overseeing also the the uh, <laughs> the enforcement. Um, where if somebody was going against the rules, another prisoner would tune them up um, to make sure that that wasn't that infraction wasn't going to happen uh, later on. So, uh, but um, yeah, that was uh, that was a that was a a unique situation, not un- totally unique, but a, a different situation than certainly what we have with prison reform today. Well, we, uh, we, in order to get to the guy who is or was considered a trustee when he was doing a little bit of time, because there, there's a lot of similarities between these two guys. I think it's going to be fun to bounce them off each other, but we have to introduce the next character here, Dad. So you got Vern Miller, right? Now we're going to have to introduce this next character who is considered to be, by many, the most successful bank robber in American history. Frank Jelly Nash. All right. Uh, I don't think you're ready for this jelly, Kahuna. Let me tell you that much. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, that's not grape or strawberry. He's uh, with he's... no peanut butter. This is crazy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Nash is just another nice Midwestern boy that has a penchant for armed robbery, safe cracking, and occasional murders. Uh, much like Vern, he actually would also serve in World War I. In doing so, this I thought was worth mentioning. In agreeing to serve in World War I, he actually had to appeal to, because he was already uh, a prisoner at this point, he explained to the warden, he goes, hey, so uh, I'm willing to serve our country. Let me go fight in World War I. And the, you know, the warden sat there and he just goes, okay, well, I guess, um, I guess we're going to take you on your word for it. You're going to go. We're going to ensure you're enlisted. And then we're going to allow you to get out of your prison sentence early so that you can go fight in fucking France. <laughs> so, uh after the war, though, just like Vern, again, he would get himself right back into trouble. Uh, good old Jelly Nash would compile a career in crime that even earns the attention of the Bureau of Investigation. Uh, this will eventually lead us up to 1933. But did you have anything else you wanted to say as we're introducing the character of uh, good old Jelly Nash? Dad? Well, Jelly Nash, he was he was a really nice guy. And you could see early on that, uh, you know, exactly where he was going, because um um, it was he was credited to probably have participated in roughly over uh, over 200 bank robberies uh, and oftentimes considered to be the mastermind of the heist. And he was a safe cracker. In other words, he was the guy that would be actually blowing up the uh, the bank vault or the or the safe to uh, get at the goods. 
And <laughs> even his first, uh, his first caper, he was uh, convicted in 1913 uh, for stealing um, $1,000 from a store in Oklahoma. Uh, and he did that with one of his friends, supposedly friends, right? This guy, Nolly Humpy Wartman. So <laughs> Humpy, Humpy and, and Nash steal the money, and then they decide, well, what they're going to do is bury the money um, and come back for it later. So Humpy is now bent over digging a hole to bury the money, and Nash shoots him in the back. And kills him right there. So, hey, all wife. the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, why take a thousand dollars and split it two ways when I can just shoot this guy in the back while he's burying the loot? And, and keep all the money. Take, take it all, right? There's yeah. a little Lufthansa to his game here where it's like, uh, you know, it, it broke Jimmy Conway's heart to have to pay the guys who helped him steal it. He'd rather kill, you know, put Frankie Carbone in the back of the uh, the meat truck. <laughs> and so but, but while he's serving time now in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary for, for that, um, he convinces the warden that uh, he's going to, uh, he wants to get out, you know, that he have a reduced sentence and get out and he's going to join the army and go fight in, in World War One, and actually did fight in uh, Bella Wood, which was a, uh, a major battle for the, for the Americans in, in World War One. That's one of the, uh, if you look at artwork of Bella Wood, um, it's unsettling. I'll put it that way. It's uh, these are guys with like gas masks on and you can see the gas coming in. And I believe that was one of the, major engagements for the United States Marine Corps over there. Right. That was that was really a, a true test of the American forces uh, coming into the World War One late, you know, after France and uh, Germany and, and England were fighting it for, for years that the Americans were coming over and they were really untested. But Bella Wood really proved to uh, everybody else uh, their worth, their their willingness to fight. Well, the great uh, Dan Carlin, who had uh, his show Hardcore History, which is a huge uh, favorite of mine, um, he actually did something kind of cool when he was talking about World War One, where he pulled out um, LP. Got to use that mute button, silly. Sorry, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> nice. You got to do a little click action here, man. But uh, poor Megan, poor cousin Megan is going to be sitting there with her headphones and uh, just walking around Wyckoff. And all of a sudden there's just going to be a, a, you clearing your throat and it's going to jar her. <laughs> but now one thing I thought that was kind of cool was that uh, Dan Carl was able to pull up uh, German intelligence reports written about the American troops, because at this point they, we'd never faced each other before. And one of the notes that they wrote about the American troops was uh, they are the best shots because I mean, it was mostly farm boys. I mean, everybody had a gun around <laughs> you know, uh, that time frame, And typically you were hunting for your dinner that night kind of a thing. Um, and then also the other word was suicidally brave that there was a lot of, uh, American kick-ass, if you will, to, uh, what the boys were doing over in, uh, you know, certain parts of France. But one thing you also have to forget about is that, yeah, why, why wouldn't you be suicidally brave when it's, uh, you know, you got out of prison to come fight <laughs> <laughs> makes you think twice about it. Right. But, uh, Another weird thing with good old Jelly Nash, and I never found out why he got the nickname Jelly, but I I would love to have known that. <laughs> <laughs> After the war, though, just like Vern, he gets himself right back into trouble. Like we said, he's compiling this career in crime. This all leads up to eventually the events that we're going to talk about here that happened in 1933. But Nash has been on the lam, and he's got a regular habit of, like you said, Dad, he's got a healthy um, appetite for safe cracking. Um 
Lots of stuff going on over here. Now, Nash also makes uh, a habit of escaping prison on the regular. Yeah. So he's able to bounce out. How many times did he wind up getting um, himself out of jail? I think it was at least three, um, you know, uh, two years after the war. Now we're up to like 1920. He uses explosives uh, as a safe cracker. Uh, he's sentenced again back to 25 more years in Oklahoma State Penitentiary. So he's back with the boys again in uh, Oklahoma State. Uh, well, he when you go back when you're a trustee, I mean, you get yeah, to walk he, around, you're in charge. Right. He becomes he becomes a trustee. Um and his sentence is reduced from 25 years to five years. Uh, and then uh, Nash is released and he joins, uh, uh, joins another gang of uh, bank robbers, uh, the Spencer gang. Uh, and they're, they're up, up in their game because they rob a, a postal train in uh, Oklahoma. And Nash uh, flees to uh, Mexico. Uh, coming back across, uh, you know, escaping the United States sanctions and uh, jumps into uh, into Mexico where he marries a woman. And he's 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 on the lam, obviously, that uh, he's not coming back into the United States, but he is uh, somehow or other enticed to come back across the, the border. And he's arrested for the burglary of the action the, of the postal train. And uh, along with some of the members of the, the other members of the Spencer gang, um, and one one more time, he's sentenced to 25 years, and and finally this time it's in the federal penitentiary in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. So uh, for mail robbery and assault on the mail custodian of the train. Um, so there he is. He's back in prison once again. Uh, once again, he escapes. <laughs> this guy. It really is laughable how bad security is. <laughs> I was just about to say, like these prisons, like this is a common thing I hear about in old prisons. Was it really just that easy? <laughs> like, come on. There was a thing with Bonnie and Clyde too, I believe, where the, it, you could just hide guns on the side of a road, knowing where a work detail was going to be. Like later that, you know, a, a day or so later. And right. I mean, prison breaks, pretty exciting stuff, but this public enemy air, there's a little bit of, um, it's almost like Frank Trebin is in charge of security. <laughs> These prisons or something like that, a little. Uh, <laughs> well, you factor that in too, that um, the prisons, because they were um, to be run uh, at, at no cost or at a profit. In other words, they were supposed to be earning their own way. So oftentimes the prisoners were leased out on uh, uh, work arrangements uh, if you saw the movie um, uh, Shawshank Redemption, uh, you could see where the warden was hiring out convicts to do work, um, and they were they were being paid, you know, nothing. But the warden was pocketing pocketing all the money. Um, and if you got um, prisoners who were guarding prisoners, um, you, know, you could you could slip away. I believe it was Nash who actually became the uh, warden's chauffeur. And uh, he was sent on an errand to go into town or something um, to pick something up and just did the skedaddle and never came back. So, you know, the, wow. uh, security was, was not real tight. And the actual paid uh, prison guards were very far and few between. So, again, that's one of the reasons why they went to this, this trusty system. But it's such a cushy gig, though. Like, you're the prison <laughs> chauffeur. Like, come on, man. Like, he was, how long was he supposed to be in prison for the, in, in this stint? Was 25. he like, 
25 years at, oh, okay. at this, this particular this particular stint was supposed to be 25 years okay because that's so a, do you want do you want to be somebody's chauffeur for 25 years in a, in a prison environment i don't listen think so, so. if alfred for batman could do it i could be <laughs> i could be a chauffeur for 25 years it's okay well, I'll tell you what, uh, now Nash, again, he breaks out one last time over here. And it's not so much that he keeps breaking out of prison. It's that in this final one, he actually escapes with seven other inmates. So now he's he's in court. It's like he's growing. Now, I got to correct you on that one. He escapes, oh. but then he comes back and assists in the escape of seven more prisoners from Leavenworth. So like, he left some of the boys behind. So uh, <laughs> he, he did the right thing. He came back, you know, leave no men left behind. So he came back and, and helped with the uh, escape of seven more prisoners from Leavenworth. So obviously <laughs> the good guys were, were looking for Mr. Jelly Nash to, uh, to apprehend him. Now and when he, you say good guys, we, we have, so it's a weird thing. Whose attention do you think, this massive jail uh, jail break is going to, you know, the focus is firmly on second place on this podcast. The focus is going to be firmly on Jelly Nash by this little group known as the Bureau of Investigation. No. Right. Well, this is he, this was a when he robbed the mail train. That was a federal offense. That's why he was sent to Leavenworth, which is a federal penitentiary, not not Oklahoma State which was a, you know, a state conviction because of the robbery and, and that type of stuff. So now, you know, he's up in his game to a federal level uh, um, situation. So that's why now the, the feds, if you will, um, whatever their title might be at this particular point in time, whether it's the uh, uh, Federal Bureau organization or FB or investigation or whatever you want to call them, that uh, it, it's a federal offense. So that's why the feds are after him now. Well, uh, using the full resources of the aforementioned bureau, which at the time did not, uh, like we said, I, I just have to double down on this because people, it, it blew my mind. I did not know this until maybe yesterday when I was reading about it. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm with the Bureau of Investigations and uh, I'm, I'm here to arrest you. Um, I mean, if you want. And, uh, <laughs> please come along. Please come along quietly because I have no way of backing this up. Yeah. So <laughs> that not allowed to have weapons. I mean, it's very, very strange. More on that later here. Um, but they would determine. They determined rather that Frank Jelly Nash was hiding out in. Uh, I, I got a kick out of this one here too because uh, essentially, from what I was reading about, was that Hot Springs, Arkansas, was essentially like the club med of the criminal underworld. Yeah. And, that's, and that's where he went to hot springs uh arkansas and again yeah you're you're right on there kev that 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 locale was noted for uh being the playground of the of the criminal underworld so you know he's rubbing elbows with some bigger names than uh, jelly nash for sure you know it's curious I'm, I'm wondering if this is pre-vegas because uh bugsy siegel maybe didn't have it all figured out just yet so that, that's interesting to think about. I didn't even put the, uh, two and two together on that one. Um, well, Frank Jelly Nash is hiding out in this uh, criminal retreat of sorts, if you will, down there in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And bureau agents by the name of Frank Smith and Joe Lackey were accompanied by Otto Reed. Okay, who is Otto Reed? Well, uh, he was a police chief in Oklahoma that had to travel with the bureau boys in order to facilitate the arrest. Because as we mentioned earlier... The early days of Hoover's boys, Jay Edgar's uh, boys, I mean, um, they were not allowed to make arrests or even to carry firearms. So you had to bring in a cop uh, who had that, you know, uh, permission and authority, if you will. In this case, it's going to be Mr. Otto Reed. So 
uh, Otto Reed and uh, the boys are going to show up. They actually make the arrest on Nash. They find him. Jelly Nash gets captured on June 16th in Hot Springs. After making the arrest, the three men and their now prisoner, again, the aforementioned Jelly Nash, um, they're heading to a car, heading by car, I should say, to a train station in order to get Nash onto a train that's going to arrive in Kansas City. The train's going to leave where they're at around 8.30 p.m. and is set to arrive in Kansas City by 7.15 that morning. So uh, you've heard of the, the, I mean, I think we've seen, I know I've seen both of the uh, 310 to Yuma's, right? This sounds kind of <laughs> yeah, like right, 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 right. High noon <laughs> coming oh, yeah. in. Um, yeah, and, and when he was arrested in, uh, in Hot Springs, uh, Oklahoma, Again, the local police chief, uh, Reed, had to make the actual arrest because, the, like you said, Kev, the feds didn't have that um, that uh, level of uh, being able to make the arrest and also from carrying weapons. Nerds. But, um, the, uh, <laughs> the arrest was made uh, in a cigar store that was uh, frequented by uh, many of the criminals of uh, what, what I had read of a national national stature. So <laughs> the big time players were were definitely known to frequent this particular c- cigar store where where Nash was um, uh, arrested. And the cigar store was owned by one Richard Galatis, which that name will come into play a little uh-huh. bit later on, too. So um, the owner of the cigar store was was there when the arrest was made. So um, people in Hot Springs realized that Nash was just picked up by the federal authorities and the local authorities and is now being transported from Hot Springs uh, back to uh, uh, eventually Leavenworth uh, Prison. Well, they got to get him over to Kansas City. Now, upon arrival in Kansas City, the men who it's again, it's two agents and um, uh, the chief Otto Reed. So it's those three guys. Plus, they have Jelly Nash. Uh, they're going to be meeting up with special agent in charge, Reed Vetterelli. Uh, I believe it's Vetterelli. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce that one. Um, uh, Vetterelli, yeah. Special agent in charge, Vetterelli. He was the guy. He was the special agent or the FBI man that was uh, in charge of the Kansas City operation. The old the, big swing the dick. FBI. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's large and in charge in Kansas City. And that's. That's the uh, the train station was coming into Kansas City. So the idea was to take him from Oklahoma to Kansas City and then from Kansas City eventually to Leavenworth. Um, and the, the best means of travel at that particular point in time in that time period was by railroad. So um, the, the three, the two agents and the arresting officer, um, Chief Reed, um, jump on the train with Nash to take him to Kansas City. Meanwhile, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously, because this thing happened in the middle of Hot Springs, there was a, a large uh, criminal element that became aware of Nash's arrest. So um, they find out what the travel plans were for the arrested uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Nash uh, and what, the, what his travel plans are. So they call ahead to make arrangements to... Uh, <laughs> hopefully intercept uh mr mr nash well he's a very well-known name as you said and he's got a couple of friends or depending on who you talk to he has some people that are very concerned about his pending trial so this leads to a plot to free nash once he arrives and i'm, I'm saying free with air quotes um, right we got a free nash once he arrives in kansas city so we're going to assemble the crew here 
Now, we promised you we'd get some good names. I think a guy named Jelly is pretty good. But uh, Richard uh, Galatis, as you said, Dad, that's uh, the cigar store owner. Uh, Herbert Farmer, guy by the name of Doc Statchy. All right. Frank Malloy, Adam Ricchetti, the aforementioned Vern Miller, and now enter the infamous Pretty Boy Floyd. Yeah, well, the 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 first four were the ones that are accredited with hatching this plan to uh, you know free quote unquote free Mister uh, Mister Nash, um, and then they are not uh, uh, then they make arrangements to bring in some uh, hired muscle. Uh, and going back now to Vern Miller, uh, Vern Miller at this particular point in time has made a name for himself as a as a freelance gunman and has already done some some work for the mob uh, in the Chicago area. Well, so, he's government trained too. Yeah, he's government trained <laughs> to, to the point where he was credited to allegedly have being able to sign his name and bullet holes with the Thompson machine gun. So, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got skills. He's got <laughs> skills. Um, uh, and actually uh, 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 Miller was also credited with um, wiping out um uh, some other underworld people that uh, one of one of Miller's friends was killed by uh, Al Capone's outfit in Chicago, a guy by the name of McLaughlin. McLaughlin's body was found in a Chicago canal. Miller gets, you know, absolutely, absolutely pissed off by that, um, that they killed uh, that one of Capone's people killed uh, his buddy. So Miller tracks him down and there's a, another famous massacre called the Fox Lake massacre where um, Miller tracks these uh, suspects uh, of, of the murder of his friend McLaughlin down and uh, he wipes them out at, at the F- Fox Lake massacre. So there's a lot of inter intergang uh, intermob uh, rivalries going on here that tit for tat that you killed my buddy. So now I'm killing three of your some of your henchmen type of thing. And it's one of my favorite bloody time. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. One of my favorite stories too, is from the episode we did on bugs Moran, where uh, the only reason that he survived the St. Valentine's day massacre, which was carried out by Al Capone was because uh, I, I forget what the deal is, but I think he got drunk and then slept in that day. So it was like <laughs> the most convenient hangover of your life. Kind of a thing. That's what he was dealing with. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And, massacre, and, and again, going back, I mean, the, the whole, uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the creation of the Federal Bureau. Um, it's because, I mean, there was just such a, a total outcry that, you know, people are being machine gunned to death uh, on the city streets and you know, just the, the crime wave that was brought about because of prohibition and given rise to uh, to the mob because of the money that they're making hand over fist with uh, with the prohibition that uh, um that really became the the driving force to to the mob is prohibition and the money that they made from that, and you know, um, protecting your territory. I mean, Chicago was probably the one of the most famous areas for that, but uh, St. Louis was uh, <laughs> not too many steps away from what was going on with the with the Chicago mob. With Hang the on, Louis isn't that mob. where Anheuser Busch is? No. no, no. <laughs> Well, uh, in classic fashion, too, you got a first of all, a name like Pretty Boy Floyd. I think most people do know that name. Uh, but Adam Rochetti, I did not know about until this story. That was like his um, he was the Robin to uh, Pretty Boy's Batman, if you will. And apparently they're already on their way to Kansas City a couple of days earlier when their car breaks down. 
And while their car is being worked on, the local sheriff drops in and Rashetti recognizes him. And he and the pretty boy, uh, as soon as they realize that, like, oh, shit, the actual sheriff is here, they wind up pulling their guns on the mechanics. And you're killing me, dude. Use that mute button. <laughs> I, I had to move some papers. Holy <laughs> It's not an American Loser episode without some paper rustling. Okay, Sorry. KP? You really picked that up. Huh? Okay. Yeah, because uh, I bought you a very nice microphone for Christmas, sir. Okay? So it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's working. It's working. If you heard those paper rustling, you heard it. You, well, the microphone's working. Well, I'm close to pulling a pretty boy Floyd here and pulling a gun on you. Right? All right. You um, pull, damn, KP. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. A little, little oversensitive, you think, or what? I, I don't know. Yeah. Right, go ahead. All right. So they got the mechanics against the wall. The mechanics against the wall. They kidnap the sheriff. They then commandeer another vehicle that they then put all their gear and their firearms in. And then they take off and they wind up uh, eventually they, they hold the sheriff hostage. Like I said, uh, eventually they do allow him to be released. He is safely released. And Floyd and Rochetti would then escape with all their firearms and gear just in time to bump into good old Vern Miller. And Vern goes, hey, man, uh, I don't know what you guys are up to, but in a couple of days, I'm thinking about freeing Jelly Nash. <laughs> you guys interested? And <laughs> of course, I mean, it, the happenstance that, that goes on here, I mean, this is where it gets in like full Western type thing. So a big time criminal is arriving in Kansas City. Keep in mind, Jelly Nash is considered the most uh, effective and successful bank robber in American history. He's got, uh, I mean, the, again, you made the distinction earlier, Dad, about being a local criminal or a federal criminal. And, right. uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that Jelly Nash is up there. So he's about to arrive in Kansas City in the morning during the public enemy era. You've got two FBI agents, one Oklahoma police chief, and Nash himself on the train. Waiting for them will be spe uh, Special Agent Vetterelli. FBI agents Raymond Caffrey and two Kansas City police officers named Grooms and Hermanson. So, uh, again, that's a, a pretty sizable group here. You got, I believe it's seven in total. Yeah. Once again, though, you had the officers, the local Kansas City uh, police people, Grooms and, and Hermanson, um, because, again, the, the federal agents really aren't legally carrying firearms i mean they, they are carrying but they're not legally carrying right point. exactly it's exactly. not part of their jurisdiction but i believe um two of them had shotguns on them so, um right to to meet uh to meet the uh the clientele that was now coming into uh clientele coming into the <laughs> union station yeah well again this big time criminals arriving here and you got uh this crew that's yeah, they're, they're surveying the scene they're being very careful here it's a uh, uh a valuable package, if you will, is about to be delivered. So, yeah, and I just I just want to throw out there, too, that all of this stuff is really happening all at the same time. I mean, Rachetti and Pretty Boy Floyd are making a name for themselves elsewhere, that they weren't in a vacuum, that there was a, a long laundry list of uh, known criminals. I mean, Rachetti and, and uh, Floyd were shooting up the place and uh, killing officers, uh, uh, bank guards uh, robbing all kinds of banks. So they were they were a reign of terror themselves, uh, along with some of the other escapades going on there. So it was did Nash call Floyd looking for assistance on this whole thing? Or was this prearranged by the four guys back in uh, uh, Hot Springs? Or, you know, there's a lot of speculation in here. And even to this day, when you start reading reports about this particular incident, there's a number of different versions as to 
you know, who's doing the reporting, who's writing the history book mm-hmm. on this one. Um, so uh, there's the, the mob side and there's the, the, uh, the FBI side, there's the local uh, police uh, side that, you know, there's so many varying stories and, uh, it, it gets it gets complicated. <laughs> Floyd's own biographers are not able to even determine if he was at this massacre. That's what's even crazy. There are conflicting reports. I'll say that much. So there's a lot of that I've noticed in this. Well, especially with uh, as my dad said, uh, who's writing the history? So it's like, well, uh, I want to make sure that the FBI looks good in this. So uh, we'll say, oh, uh, hey. it's it's like. Um like Edgar Allan Poe or, or not Edgar, is it Edgar where it's like you don't want your enemy to write your yes your your obituary Excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> right. and pretty boy Floyd I mean he was uh, a media sensation in his own right that he's making all kinds of headlines all over the place but he's got he has some popular support because when he went in to rob a bank oftentimes he would also burn mortgage papers so a lot of the locals who were owed their mortgage to the local bank that this guy just robbed. He would burn their mortgage. So it's kind of like a, a Robin Hood slant on this too, that, yeah, he, he just got away with, you know, $20,000, but thank God he was able to burn the, burn the mortgage documents that uh, I now own this place free and clear because the bank can't prove otherwise. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of like how um, banks give you candy now. You know, the same kind of a thing. So get a free pen, (laughs) free pen, free pen, free pen. Um, Now, as Frank is being Frank Jelly Nash is being escorted from the train. He is flanked by seven armed lawmen, all of varying backgrounds. That's actually a big thing. Now, they always talk about with um, especially different branches of the military is that if everyone has the same baseline training, that means that a Coast Guard guy can come operate with an army guy. Uh, in you know some sort of an emergency, and they would understand each other. You wouldn't be like, "Well, here's how we do things over in the Coast Guard." So you got to keep in mind you got an Oklahoma lawman, you got a couple of FBI agents, you got some Kansas City cops that are showing up. It, there's a special agent in charge. I mean, this is a weird contingent. So uh, they had surveyed the scene multiple times. They didn't see anything that appeared to be out of the ordinary. So as they're now coming through the train station outside of the east entrance of Union Station in Kansas City. Um, I think you guys know what's about to happen. Um, uh, Nash was handcuffed and being escorted to a car. They had two different vehicles that were there so they could uh, make sure that, you know, it's kind of like a, a which vehicle is he in kind of a thing. Right. So, Plus you had seven seven people that now had to be transported. Exactly. So <laughs> um, this is when all hell is going to break loose. As the agents place Nash into the vehicle and get in themselves while supervised, um, Agent Lackey notices two armed men running from behind a vehicle. It was a green Plymouth, I believe. And uh, before they could even respond or even attempt to react, a voice command screaming up, up and let them have it was heard. And what do you think comes following that? (laughs) A rain of bullets. Yep. Boom. Gunshots ringing out. You got machine guns. Uh, some other pistols and stuff like that, too. I mean, these guys are armed. They're well-armed, I'll say that much. As the gunshots are ringing out, the Kansas City police officers, Hermanson and Grooms, are killed immediately. Special Agent Vetterly uh, was shot in the left arm, and as he falls to the ground now, he's sitting there, he's, he's literally got a gunshot wound in his left arm. Uh, as he's on the ground, he then sees Agent Caffrey's body drop on the other side of the car. Boom, fatal bullet wound to the head. 
So he knows for a fact that so you lost the two Kansas City police officers. Now, Agent Caffrey's dead, too. So because you can see his the giant hole where his forehead used to be. Um, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine. Again, all this takes place in about 30 seconds. I mean, that that's a. Uh, I mean, I was going to spot. I was going to say it earlier, but the truth still stands. I don't think any plan that involves kidnapping a sheriff is ever going to end well. I don't think it ever has ended well. I don't think it ever will end well. So they kind of set themselves up for failure there. Well, it's crazy, too, because, uh, again, Caffrey's dead now. The two Kansas City police uh, officers are dead in the car. Get, remember, we were mentioning a, quote, air, quote, rescue mission that we're going to free Frank Jelly Nash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in the car, Frank Jelly Nash and Chief Reed. I actually feel really bad for Chief Reed. I think he's the he's got the most um, <laughs> he's the most sympathetic guy here in this story because he's just an Oklahoma lawman. He's like, yeah, these I don't know these federal government nerds need me to help facilitate an arrest or something like that. And this guy's just I picture him as almost like a, 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 like an Archie Bunker type or something, and he's just standing there. And then finally, uh, him and Reed are, I'm sorry, he is Chief Reed and Frank Jelly Nash are both sitting next to each other. They're killed in a hail of gunfire. So the quote rescue mission. Yeah. Well, let me, let me just back you up there because, um, as they're coming out of the train station, um, Nash is handcuffed and the one agent goes to open the door to the car on the, on the right side, the passenger side Mm -hmm. of the car that goes to open the door and Nash goes to get into the back seat and then he's redirected. No, you're going to sit, you're going to sit in the front seat. And then all the agents are in the back seat. So you had Frank Smith in the back seat uh, in the middle. You had uh, Lackey was the first guy um, to get uh, the agent. Lackey is the first guy to get into the back seat uh, left side. So he's behind the driver behind the driver's seat. Then Frank Smith is in the middle uh, and then uh, Vertelli, Special Agent Vertelli, the guy that's large and in charge in Kansas City, he's on the sidewalk kind of directing things on the right side of the vehicle. Um, they put um, Chief Reed in the front seat. Uh, I'm sorry, the right rear. Um, so then that's when the, the shooting started. Uh, the one guy, Raymond Caffrey, he's the, he was going to be the driver. So he's going around to the driver's side of the car. And that's when... Uh, you know, the shit, the shit storm started that the rain of bullets and stuff. Reed gets, uh, um, Reed gets killed. Uh, officer grooms and officer Hermanson get killed. Uh, the two the guys in the back seat, uh, Smith does not get killed, but lackey does. And then, uh, Nash is in the back seat and he gets he actually, gets, uh, agent lackey yeah. lives. He gets, uh, struck with three bullets, but oh, survives. Right. Yeah. yeah. What, what had happened is the agents in the back seat kind of slumped forward. Uh, I guess when the shit storm started, they slumped forward. Um, and, uh, I guess they had the appearance of being dead, um, because, <laughs> After the, the rain of fire subsided, again, it, this whole thing took place in 30 seconds. Um, the gunman ran up, looked into the car, saw the two guys in the back seat slumped over. Nash was uh, slumped over and certainly uh, Reed was dead. And then they they skedaddled. They took off. So they were presumed dead. But the one guy was not. He just had three bullet bullet holes in him. Um, but he he lived. Uh, he, he survived the the attack. 
So then your survivors are going to wind up being Agent Smith, uh, who is left unscathed. He's the only guy who doesn't get shot. Lackey's right. got three bullet wounds in him. And uh, Special Agent Vetterelli has the, the left arm gunshot wound. Right. So now they all said that they were unable to even this is how fast this shit happened. They were unable to determine if there were three or four gunmen, because, again, the entire thing takes place in about 30 seconds. So, yeah, and it's coming from a couple of different directions, too. So they're not sure, you know, who, how many and, and who's firing what. But uh, and then they uh, the, the gunman took off. Well, as they're escaping, like you said, uh, one of the gunmen takes a look in the car and concludes that all the men are dead. And as they're taking off, an additional Kansas City police officer actually begins shooting at a man that he later claims uh, to have identified as pretty boy Floyd. So Yeah, that, that that particular policeman was inside the station. So he comes running out to see what what the frig is going on and then uh, identifies supposedly uh, pretty boy Floyd. Well, so the massacre itself has happened now. So eventually we're going to have to talk about the aftermath here. Um, I'm going to we have to start wrapping this up, uh, the episode up anyway here. So um, but again, our survivors of this infamous Kansas City massacre, Agent Smith, Vetterelli and Lackey. OK, they're, they're the only guys that are still alive right now. Frank Jelly Nash. What, what a great rescue attempt when you just riddle the dude with bullets. <laughs> yeah. So, Yeah. It's got a very, it's a, it's almost got a Three Stooges level energy to it. It's well, like, save me, not shoot me. <laughs> well, so then you got a question, was was that just because they blew the mission or was that was their mission all along to uh, to do away with Nash or uh, were they to rescue Nash? So that, there's a lot of speculation there. But this certainly gave, you know, rise of public attention to this whole thing. And maybe, maybe we ought to have the uh, federal, our federal agents being able to be armed. So it took a, an act of Congress to, uh, to bring that change about, but it was attributed in large part to this uh, Kansas City. Kansas it, took City an, it took an act of Congress for that to officially get passed. Right. So rather than sending unarmed uh, federal officials against machine guns, eh, maybe we ought to help them have a, have a couple of toys um, of their own. Yeah, exactly. Well, Logic. again, the FBI was a, it was a private thing. So back when it was the Bureau of Investigation, it wasn't fully absorbed by the government yet. So it was kind of like a weird test agency. It was almost like a private detective thing, like Pinkerton type vibe, maybe. But definitely some weird shit going on here. But like you said, Dad, you don't get to pull off something like this without some recompense. Okay. You like that word? Huh? 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 You like that word, Dad? <laughs> recompense man uh this leads to increased authority for the fbi agents as we talked about and they're now allowed to carry the weapons and enforce arrests also you don't think that they're not going to hunt these boys down do you all right uh now the first guy that we even introduced for this story is Vern miller okay now i thought this was interesting i'm going to set you up for success here lp you ready Lawrence Patrick, you good? You got the mute button on now, you jerk. <laughs> I was rustling papers. Ah! <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get there, guy. I'm trying I to get love there. you, you jerk. Um, <laughs> well, I'm going to set you up for success now. So uh, ruffle your papers uh, in a minute here. But, Dad, around Thanksgiving of 1933, the body of Vern Miller is found. Okay. It is mutilated in a ditch outside of Michigan. Prior to this, where was he hiding out? Well, uh, yeah, his his body is found uh, outside of uh, Detroit in a ditch, and 
uh, strangled, tortured, and beaten to death with a claw hammer. So he, he didn't go out in a he didn't go out in a good way. Um, I still think it was an accident. But following the Kansas City uh, shootout, uh, he actually hides out with ready for this loserception. I don't know if you came across this one, Kev, but uh, Mr. Vern Miller is hiding out with uh, some of the uh, uh, Barker Carpus gang. Um, and then that was only for a couple of days. But then uh, I think I think Vern was really, really tired of the whole Chicago deep dish pizza and <laughs> was, was really craving some Jersey pie, some where's the best pizza pie in the world? Well, it's got to be in New Jersey. Um, so he actually hangs out um, with a known uh, mafioso, excuse me, not, I shouldn't say mafia because that doesn't really exist. It's just a social club. But uh, um, he goes back to New Jersey and he's hanging out with uh, a mobster by the name of uh, Abner Longy Zwillman in good old Orange, New Jersey. Uh, and he's 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 on the lamb. He's he's hiding out, but he it's goes the back center to of the universe. That's it's why the he center should. of the universe. And while he's while he's in Orange, New Jersey, of course, he's got to stop in into the Star Tavern for a slice of thin crust pizza because it's the best pizza in all the world. But local uh, reference. There you go. There you go. Um, but uh, he's hanging out in Orange, New Jersey. He's on the lamb. He's just cooling his heels for a while. But uh, while he's in Orange, New Jersey. Uh, Miller gets into an argument with uh, uh, one of the, the Zulman uh, gunmen and uh, kills him, shoots him. So now he's fleeing, <laughs> fleeing New Jersey because he doesn't want to face the wrath of uh, of uh, Longy Zulman. Um, so he's um, he's he's escaping. He's shooting his way out. He's he's trying to get away from federal agents. He's trying to get away from. I guess mob connections uh, as well. So, um, but then his body is found later, uh, as you said, Kev. Shortly after uh, Thanksgiving, November 29th, his body's found in uh, in a ditch outside of Detroit, Michigan. He's strangled, he's tortured, um, and beaten to death with a claw hammer. So uh, yeah, he didn't go out clean. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, there's. There's speculation as to why he met the fate that he did. Was it because of retaliation for uh, Zwillman's uh, gang member or was it because of uh, his failure of the Kansas City uh, rescue of uh, of Nash or what, 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 why, why was he murdered the way he was? But uh, obviously it was a mob hit. Well, I mean, he's not alone in this either. This is uh, there's more stuff going on here in the background, too. So Vern Miller is dead. This is 1933 now. Uh, Ricchetti, Adam Ricchetti, he would be arrested during a shootout with that. He and the pretty boy are both involved. Remember I said they're kind of like a Batman and Robin thing. Yeah. Um, Adam Ricchetti and, and pretty boy Floyd were, uh, were partners, if you will. And they're in their spree of, of crime, Robin Banks and shooting up the place. Well, during this one particular shootout here, Pretty Boy barely is able to escape from. Ricchetti gets captured. He is tried and convicted in part for his participation in the Kansas City Massacre and is executed by the state in 1938. So Ricchetti's done. Killed. Whacked. <laughs> uh, Pretty Boy himself will be killed later that year in a gunfight with the FBI. 
I refuse to go into too, too many details here, Dad, because I think we've got another episode on our hands for uh, <laughs> Pretty Boy Floyd. <laughs> yeah. D- depending yeah. on which legend you want to go with, there's the idea that uh, Melvin Purvis. Uh, so we said this before, too. It was you had four uh, Alvin Karpis, uh, uh, Dillinger, uh, Babyface Nelson, Pretty Boy Floyd. Those are the four people to ever be named public enemy number one by the FBI. Right. So Purvis, Melvin Purvis of the Bureau of Investigation is actually credited with having killed uh, two of them. He's the man who killed John Dillinger. And he's also, depending on how you want to read it, he's the guy that kills Pretty Boy Floyd. So there well, led, led to his capture. Uh, again, if you read the FBI account, mm-hmm. uh, it's a whole lot different than some of the other local accounts as to how they uh, captured, quote unquote, Pretty Boy Floyd. Some say it was Purvis who put a, a uh, a couple of rounds of bullets into into his um, into his body as he's laying down on the ground. So, you know, you have the right to remain silent forever. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. That's why I said I think that'll be another uh, episode down the road here. But um, now you got to ask, we gotta, as, as we're cleaning up this mess here towards the end, Ed, what about um, uh, Gladys, uh, Farmer, Doc, and Malloy? I mean, the other people who are part of this conspiracy to free Jelly Nash again, free being <laughs> superfluous and meaning yeah, free or silence, depending <laughs> on your, on your viewpoint. Um, yeah, they get arrested. They get arrested and, uh, convicted. And I believe they were fined $10,000, uh, each and had to serve two years. Yep. So as, as conspirator, and I, I thought it was interesting too, that, um, in the trial of, uh, Adam Rachetti, once he was captured, in his trial, um, during which a, n- a number of eyewitnesses identified him and Floyd, pretty boy Floyd, despite these witnesses having previously identified other suspects. So, <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, yeah, that's right. That's the guy. That's the guy. Uh, or they were unable to identify anybody at the time of the shooting. So, I mean, the trial came on, uh, I guess it was two or three years after the actual shootout. So, um, you have supposed eyewitness accounts changing their eyewitness account two years later to to now testify against somebody else uh, completely different. So it was shaky. It was shaky grounds. And of course, the whole media um, build up with uh, J. Edgar be running behind the scenes, trying to build this up with his whole public enemy. Number one, when Dillinger was uh, was killed that elevated um, pretty boy Floyd to public enemy number one. So he was number two until Dillinger was quote unquote captured. And then uh, pretty boy uh, was elevated to number one type of thing. So I can't remember if I had that right. I, I feel like pretty boy got shot previous to Dillinger, right? Cause I believe, I think Dillinger doesn't die till a couple of years later. No, I, I, I'm not sure on that. I, I would, I would speculate that Dillinger uh, was uh, taken out first, but you know, I think an interesting little, uh, just suppose kind of a thing. Um, all of these guys are truly bad guys. I mean, you're killing police officers and you're killing bank guards and everything else, and robbing banks. You're, you're bad. <laughs> you know, we can, we can put you in the bad pile. Um, so and and the um, law enforcement was trying to capture these guys for a number of years now. So, um, hey, if we can't 
if we can't catch you outright, um, maybe we can just trump up the charges. But we're we're gonna we're gonna get you one way or another. So you know, don't don't let the facts, the truth, the details actually stand in the way of uh, one way or another. <laughs> right. We're we're gonna take you out of the out of the picture one way or another. Well, that was awesome. Um, I'm going to wrap this bad boy up because we're over the hour right now. And I know the Coons have got a lot of stuff going on today he's got to deal with. So I will say this. I want to say thank you so much to the listeners of the show. You guys mean a lot to us. We will have an end of the month special. Uh, Dad, you and I already talked about this a little bit. I even kind of put it up in the Patreon. So uh, for your uh, Patreon exclusive episode, uh, we're going to call a doctor and we'll make sure that American Loser winds up on your tombstone. All right. That's the little hint right there for you. So most people already figured it out because we have a very smart listener uh, base. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, I love doing this. I loved getting to learn about this one. This one was, I mean, completely underreported on, in my opinion. I'd never heard of it really until, uh, you know, unless it was just occasionally in passing. I think the movie Public Enemies might reference it. But I mean, this is some heavy shit here. So it probably should have gotten a little bit more attention than it's uh, deserved in the history books. But uh, that being said, LP, you have anything you want to say on the way out? Um, I just found some references that uh, the the TV show Fargo uh, season four um, pays homage to this whole Kansas City shootout that they're they're basing one of their episodes on uh, on something along the along the Kansas City massacre lines type of thing. I wonder if that's the one with uh, Chris Rock in it. Uh, I that I couldn't tell you. Really. Yeah. We have to. Well, we'll check that out. We'll so uh, you know ensure it's historical accuracy. But uh, Cahoon, did you have anything you wanted to say if, uh, on the way out? Maybe a casting couch for us for uh, who you ca- man. I don't really have a casting couch for this one, but I will say too many that people. This was, yeah, there was way too many people, <laughs> but it was also just like. First off, I I don't think you could make a movie out of a thirty second event. So I mean, I know there's a lot more surrounding said thirty second event, but regardless. Friggin', this is one of the more fascinating ones because it's again, it's one of those things where it was just like I had no idea this went down, and it was just interesting to see it unfold in the way that it does because it's 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 like watching a what people think is a well-executed plan just slowly, slowly fall apart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh I mean, shit hits the fan in a big way on that one. So, again, that's why this show winds up, uh, you know, having to cover stuff like this. But, I mean, uh, thank you again for your time today here, Cahoons. Thank you to the Always listeners back at home. LP, I miss you, guy. Yeah, I miss you too. But I don't miss shoveling snow, so. Oh, it's Yeah, so he's got a severe heat problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, It really stinks, actually. I won't lie. I was sitting there bitching down in Jacksonville, Florida, maybe about a month ago, sitting there saying, I'm not getting anything done, man. If I get back up to Jersey, at least I'll get some shit done. And I think it's <laughs> snowed five times now since I've been here. So no more bike riding around uh, as the, the sun sets down in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm an idiot is what I'm trying to tell you guys. Okay. <laughs> at least you know. Poor choices. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, love the both of you. All right. Uh, it was a good time here today. We're going to hang on just for a second here afterwards once Kahuna, uh, you know finishes up the recording here. But, guys, the listeners of the show, you guys mean a lot to us. If you want to join the Patreon, it's just five bucks a month. That's all I'm asking for. It helps me keep the bills. Uh, well, I mean, honestly, it allows me to afford to be able to hire Kahuna to make him do all the StreamYard shit. <laughs> but that being said, guys, that was the Kansas City Massacre, American Loser. An American Loser, the day I was born. An American Loser, the day I was born. 
can't lose her the day I was born.